Hello, this is Bob Groves. We're leading a, another episode of the podcast, Faculty and Research, and I'm overjoyed to enter into a conversation with Kobe Nissim, who is a McDevitt Professor of Computer Science, one of our best endowed positions. He's a computer scientist who's interested in a more formal study, and we might probe that word formal, of privacy in the collection and sharing and analysis of data, especially personally identifiable data. And in doing so, quite interestingly, he's trying to make a bridge between a mathematical approach to those topics and the word-based approach, if you will, that uh, dominates in legal and statutes regarding privacy and regulations regarding privacy. He's also interested in cryptography and, and uh, the theory of computing. But Kobe, I'm overjoyed that we've been able to persuade you to spend some time with us today. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you, Bob. And it was, wasn't hard to persuade me, I can assure you. <laughs> so maybe we should begin by you're just giving us a sense of what you're working on now. And sometimes uh, in a researcher's life, the project is such that you can't stop thinking about it when you're not working on it. It, it just dominates what you're doing. So I'd love to get some insight in, into what you're up to right now. Yeah, there are certainly things that keep me awake at night from time to time, and some of them related to research and the problems that my research is trying to address. So as you said, I'm coming from a background of theoretical computer science, and the theory in computer science is kind of the least speculative part of computer science, where we're trying to base our knowledge on solid uh, mathematical understanding. So we're, we're having definitions and theorems and proofs as people doing math classes in every math subject. And within theory of computer science, I started working in cryptography. And then in the last two plus decades, I and focused on uh, privacy and computing. And this is roughly what consumes every uh, spare time, every time that I have to think and to to work on, on research. I'm worried about us losing privacy as society and with the benefits that we could gain from privacy. Uh, this is a process in progress that we've seen happening since the internet became so prominent in our lives. So so much information is collected about us all the time, and it's very rich, and many of it is sensitive. And we are at stake of losing the benefits that we could gain or protection that we could gain from keeping some of this information just to ourselves. Uh, we have not gone through a long evolution here, so we didn't have time to, as a society, to adjust to the new world and it's very changing very fast and this means to me that we need to create technology that inherently provides protections to individuals to individual privacy and this is what i'm working on and then the second thing that you mentioned also is that uh, not only we were protected on not only by technology but by other systems in particular by the legal system. And one of the things that I'm working on is to try to find bridges between the way we understand privacy in technology, the way we 
address it mathematically, the science that we've developed around understanding privacy, and the way it's understood more normatively in law and philosophy, and which is very different and a lot less formal from a mathematical point of view, and to find ways to bridge between these two, because I believe that uh, having uh, gaps between these two worlds is very detrimental to actually providing individuals with a kind of protection that they deserve, and also uh, society with the kind of protection that society needs. Maybe this is one of the things that most excites me today is this realization that we can apply mathematical thinking, we can bring in ideas from computer science, we can bring in the language of computer science and concepts from computer science and try to apply them in an analysis of uh, privacy regulation to identify the gaps and to try to close them. And with the hope that this would allow us to get to better regulation on the one hand and to a world where our technology and our regulation are actually working meaningfully together in order to uh, provide the protection and not kind of just a theory of protection that I'm worried sometimes have. And to actually realize to what extent we can provide privacy protection that is meaningful, where we lack it. In that case, we will need to find other solutions to replace the loss of privacy and so on. I'm worried that now, still, without a good enough understanding of how these things work together, but we're at a critical point where we need them to work together in a meaningful way. As a provost, I get to look at different disciplines and uh, the gulf between theoretical developments and applications within a discipline is often large. The purity and the beauty of theoretical development is often so enticing that it's hard for the theoreticians to get their hands dirty with applied problems. But you are uh, building a bridge from theory in one discipline to a to another profession. I'm interested in the origin of building that bridge. What was the first step there? Actually, it's a funny story. I was trying for years to create a connection with people working on privacy from other disciplines, from the medical uh, sciences, from law, communications, philosophy, without a lot of success. And in 2012, I went on a sabbatical. I spent a few years at Harvard, as you know, uh, overall five years. And there I joined a project led by Salil Vadan that had computer scientists, social scientists, and legal uh, scholars work together. And within this project, I was asked to establish a working group to look at some questions. Uh, it was called the Identification Working Group. And still we call it this way until today, just to remind us what this group is actually not doing, in a <laughs> sense. And I remember I was asked to sit in the same room with lawyers and computer scientists and social scientists and to lead a discussion. And it was very interesting, but I kind of had zero hopes that anything real will come out of it. And actually, I marked this on my calendar as wasting my time. And that was a weekly meeting that we had. And after a few months where we were reviewing some of the U.S. 
privacy standard, in particular FERPA, which is a standard about educational records, I suddenly realized that there is something in this standard to hold on to in an analysis that is reminiscent of the way we think in cryptography. And I managed to show the other participants this and convince them that this is a promising direction. And I think that was a major turning point for me and also for my collaborators to understand that actually I was not wasting my time, that we can make progress in a way of you know trying to bridge between our mathematical understanding. There were a lot of experts on differential privacy and privacy in the room and the legal understanding of this particular regulation. It took us four and a half years to write that paper, and it had our first model, like in the first place where we actually introduced the mathematical model of ideas that are expressed in the law. It's a process where we learned a lot, and this process gave me some hope that we could repeat this in other places and with respect to other regulations. Actually, initially, I was so naive to think that the way we thought about that regulation, FERPA, was so general that now we would easily apply it to other regulations. And indeed, we had students coming over summer to work with us, and we gave them our paper and HIPAA, which is regulation that contains a regulation about privacy of medical, information and they worked on it very hard and there was no result and that was a big lesson for me uh, learning how the kind of work we're doing depends on how laws are actually being written and that what you think is very general from a mathematical point of view doesn't remain general when you actually try to match it with the law but that was the starting point and so in a sense, I did not plan for this to happen. Uh, I kind of jumped on this once I realized that something really exciting and interesting for me is happening there. And it is taking more and more of my research time, like spending my time on finding paradigms for bridging, realizing what can and what cannot be done, and making progress in this direction. It's very still very far from saying whether we are succeeding or not, but I think there are quite a few positive signs that something interesting is happening here. And this is what I find exciting. So I think coming from theoretical computer science, maybe the most important thing that we value is ideas, nice ideas, cool ideas. And this is exactly what I'm also looking for here. Can we have simple concepts, simple ideas that actually help us clarify this mess. And I think we are slowly, slowly finding them. And that's that's the essence of this work. So now that you've done this for some years, one of the issues of the law is that it it isn't written with mathematical precision. Sometimes deliberately, I think, that words are chosen that have an ambiguity that fit the political process that's required to pass a law. But do you find yourself thinking about how to write in words that uh, are more precise now if you were writing the statutes? So not necessarily, actually. Initially, I felt a strong opposition to this ambiguity, especially because I'm coming from a mathematical background. And I want to work with crisp definitions and do math, right? 
But I think over the years, I realized that the, a better approach is to say we have two very different disciplines and with very different values. Now, theoretical computer science, yeah, we need definitions. We need this crispness. We need to be able to argue with mathematical precision. But the lawyers are not going to give up the ambiguity, and they have good reasons not to. And they actually, they call it flexibility, not ambiguity. It's, it is considered a positive thing. I think there's no chance to bridge between the disciplines if we don't respect the values of both disciplines. Okay, So instead of fighting uh, flexibility, I'm looking for strategies to... On one hand, come up with mathematically precise definitions, and on the other hand, not to force my interpretation or any exact interpretation on the law. So there must remain some gray area around the line that the law is trying to draw. One of the strategies is I can try to uh, draw a line that is on one side of the law to make sure that it's really on one side of the law, whether it's clearly allowed or clearly disallowed, and then to try to sandwich the law between these two lines. Uh, these lines are mathematically defined. The law itself remains with gray areas. If we find useful lines, then we can use them to design technology, tell technologies, if you want to make sure that you're on the positive side of the law, obey this requirement, which is likely strain, more stringent than what is required by the law, but you will be on the safe side. If you don't, then maybe you have to ask a lawyer. They will tell you it depends and so on. Or you will have to eventually uh, go to court and you know learn what the outcome is. I, I cannot tell you clearly uh, whether you're doing well or not. But if you are on the safe side, yes, you are. And this proved so far to be a useful paradigm. And I think this is just an example how um, this kind of work we're trying to say, it's not that we're mechanizing the law. Personally, I think that's going to be a bad idea. I think we need humans to make normative decisions, okay? And we need humans to deliberate, and we need lawyers, and we need legal scholars. It's not computer science taking over the law, but it's computer science working with the law while respecting these values that legal scholars want to pursue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You define two boundaries, right? If I get it right, uh, one boundary is if you exceed this threshold, you are clearly in violation of the law unambiguously. Another boundary is if you're below this, you're clearly acceptable to the law. And then there's this gray in between on the boundaries where you need judgment and legal scholarship. Exactly. So in a sense, it's sandwiching the law between two definitions. With the hope that as we progress with this kind of study, we can get a better sandwich. So less gray areas and hence more useful definitions to work with. And in this process, a lot of other things happen. For instance, we sometimes read in law in the law requirements that we can prove are impossible from a mathematical point of view. So this is a place that needs to be corrected in order to get a meaningful legal requirement. So this is another place, sometimes normatively, uh, the, the requirements that are expressed normatively are not feasible, and we can prove that they are not feasible. And these are places where we need to 
negotiate with the law and suggest modifications for the definitions in order to make sure that the law is actually in line with our current scientific understanding of these of these matters. This is the second thing that happened to us several times so far, and I think it's been useful also for the regulators to see this, and hopefully some of these things that we've learned will fit into update of the current regulation, both in the US and in, in the EU. You've chosen to do your work in a university setting. Tell me how you come to navigate between the teaching and the research side of your life. I have to say it's not easy, okay? But it's something that you learn to do over the over the years. I think one can think about several strategies. When you begin early on, pick those classes that interest you the most and try to teach those. I had my preferences, classes that I like until today, and I'd be happy to teach them again, again, again. And these are classes where you spend a lot of energy, you know, preparing for the first or second year. You learn how students react to your teaching, you adapt, you modify. But after that, you have a lot of confidence in what you're teaching and it becomes easier. But it's still very interesting for you because you pick those classes that, that you really liked. I think this is something good I did when I first joined university. I asked for a specific class. Maybe others didn't want, didn't like it and didn't ask to teach it, but I, I really was happy to teach foundations of theory, in a sense. Another thing is teaching is a great tool for progressing my own research. Sometimes I'm teaching uh, stuff that I'm not fully familiar with, but it's a kind of a forcing function. It forces me to learn the material before class or sometimes learn it with the students. And I have this wonderful example that I remember until today, coming into class where uh, Amos Fiat, a professor in Tel Aviv, now a close friend, was teaching this class. I was one of the students and he brought an article to class and say, here's a paper I did not understand. He gave us copies and we were trying to understand it together. Now, it's not that I understood the paper at the end of that class, but I understood something very important about how you do research and how you think about stuff and that even the great atmosphere doesn't understand everything, right? So I think in, in advanced classes, you can sometimes do things like that that help you with your own research, okay? And also indirectly or directly help students understand exactly how research is done. Because one of the things I'm worried about when I'm teaching, let's say if I'm using slides or something like that, that everything looks like magic. The professor knows everything. The way I think about myself is I don't think I know uh, a lot. So there's this gap. And I would want also students to understand that, you know, the professor does not understand everything. The, the only fact is that they prepared it ahead of time, but it Sometimes it took years until these ideas progressed into what you see in class. Especially in advanced classes, I think there is time to show this. You know, when you're actually working, there is, there's so much you don't understand. And the process is tiring and frustrating. And it's fair that students will see that and they will understand that this is what to be expected. I think 
the third thing I will say and, and, and then stop, you have also to remember that you are finite, your time is finite. So everything is a trade-off and kind of a compromise. So I would warn, especially professors that just begin with their job, I would warn against trying to do everything perfect. I think that's probably not the best strategy. You will be uh, judged based on both uh, your teaching and your research, and none of them should be neglected. And this means that you have to give in some places, and that's totally fine. As I said, you know, maybe even students will learn from that. You're not perfect. They should not aspire to be perfect. They should aspire to do the best they can. So you're not really even damaging your students by making a trade-off as long as it's reasonable. I love your story of the rigor that's required of a life of the mind, the, the fact that you're always learning and every day is a challenge in a way when you branch a little away from your individual focus. That's beautiful. And students pick up on that. That itself, as you said, is a learning exercise. So I want to thank you for your time with us, Kobe. It's been wonderful. And what you're doing in building these bridges uh, between theory and computer science and another profession is, is admirable for all of us. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bob. I really enjoyed being with you.